Welcome everyone to episode 375 of Fergun Freak. I'm your host, the Glorious League Freak, and today we are joined by a special guest. You've heard him before. It's Elliot Richardson from Rugby League Monthly and One Ideal. How are you doing, Elliot? Good, thanks, mate. How are you? Pretty good. Now, uh, you caused a controversy storm on Twitter. Unbelievable. Stirring the hornet's nest, really, weren't you? You were just trying to make trouble. I'm guessing uh, it was. That was that was half my intention. Um, <laughs> I I watch a lot of NFL, you're right, and and yeah. so you get a lot of the hot takes during the NFL season. And um, the Packers have been knocked out the week before, so my interest in in the NFL was just seeing how much carnage was going to occur during the um the it's not a divisional round, it's the the championship, the NFC and AFC championship games. Mm-hmm. Um, and I saw someone stick up, you know, what's like your controversial NFL opinion. And I'm like, oh, we'll, we'll apply it to rugby league because I'm sure there's plenty out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and the first 24 hours or so was, was pretty slow. There wasn't a lot of like feedback. I'm pretty sure I sent it out like on a Thursday night. And it, then it really started heating up on a Friday night and over the weekend. Mm-hmm. And it basically went nuts for about five days. My phone was constantly pinging notifications at me like people retweeting, commenting, quote tweeting. Um, my my notifications list, I, I can hardly go scroll, scroll back any further than two or three days on it um, mm. before Twitter starts like freezing up. <laughs> <laughs> well, just to give some perspective, it was like 230 times, which is pretty good. You know, that's a, that's a high level tweet, but it was quote tweeted 164 times which is outrageous yeah so, you don't normally say that yeah so now the tweet was and it was on rugby uh it was on league monthly so if you put in at league monthly no space and it was what's your controversial rugby league opinion and it says mine is that both Parramatta and manly should have been awarded premierships in 2007 2009 now that's one I actually agree with. I replied and said I agree with that because I, I'm sure I wrote an article, especially about the Parramatta one at the time, um, because the a lot of the Storm salary cap stuff come out not too long after that grand final. And I remember um, Nathan Hindmarsh saying, not, yeah, Nathan Hindmarsh saying that uh, he didn't want a premiership that way, but I'm sure he'd take it now. All right, so... In the, some of the some of the events I've seen Nathan at, someone always asks him a question about that, mm-hmm. um, and he's he's a lot more blunt. I think these days he's basically yeah, just uh, I'll take it. Um, yeah. I remember so so 2010 obviously is when they get busted over the cap Melbourne, mm-hmm. um, and I actually I think it was the next year I think Nathan Kalis was um, he just retired so he was doing like a, like a pre pre match function at, at the Leagues Club. Mm-hmm. Um, and you could tell he was still fuming over that. Like yeah. he was, because I remember it was before we were playing Melbourne that day, yeah. and he was like, "We've got to go out there, and we got we got to smash Melbourne. We weren't going too well." And so you got to go out there, and you got to flog Melbourne, essentially. Um, and I, I, when I saw that, I went, you know, that really obviously hurt hurt the guys that got beaten on the day. Um, and and part of my 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 point also was and. I get where a lot of other fans come from that I wouldn't want to win a premiership that way. And look, I understand that because that it, it feels a bit hollow. Right? You, you didn't win on the day. Mm-hmm. However, you got beaten by a team that was systematically cheating the salary cap and by all rights shouldn't, shouldn't have had the squad that they did um, and shouldn't have been able to do what they do. But um, yeah, I, 
when I sent that tweet out, I, I knew I'd probably get a fair few people agreeing with me because there's a lot of Eels fans that follow me. And a lot of yeah. neutrals kind of say the same thing. It was really the, the Melbourne fans that didn't agree with that. And a lot of them are saying that they shouldn't have been stripped out of any premierships. They should have just been fined. And I went, well, that doesn't discourage anyone from cheating yeah. the cap. It's you know? just a tax. It becomes a tax for winning exactly. a premiership. How much will it cost me to win this premiership? Yeah. Um, and the, the NRL made its own bed in that regard as well because in the, the – the, so before 2006, I was looking at this a while ago. Before 2006, Melbourne was getting pinged every year for salary cap indiscrepancies alongside some other clubs, so it wasn't just Melbourne. Yeah. But Melbourne what was popping up like every year. Yeah. Just with like, uh, you know, a, a misreported third party agreement, um, you know, a, a misreported uh, contract registration, things like that. Yeah. And you look at that and you go, well, how closely did the NRL look at them? You know, because they only got caught because uh, a disgruntled former employee went to the press, which is actually how Parramatta got caught in 2016. Mm-hmm. And almost every club that gets caught is caught that way. I'm pretty sure the same thing happened to the Bulldogs. Um, it's never the NRL that catches anyone over the cap. It's the, the clubs essentially dobbing themselves in. Yeah, from memory, the Bulldogs one, I think, was tied into the Oasis project. And when the Oasis project started to be looked into, I believe, by the government um, for some issues there, there was all of a sudden it was like, hang on a second, what's all this money being, you know, siphoned through to the football club and how's it being used? Um, but the the thing is too that the, there's there's a difference between you know you you set your salary cap before the season and some player in your club uh, hits ridiculous performance markers and their salary because of that goes up because they've hit those performance markers in their contract and so you end up over the cap by you know a couple of hundred thousand dollars. There's a big difference between that and what the Storm were doing in particular, where it was... Two sets of books. Yeah, two sets of books, millions of dollars over the cap, and systematic rorting of the cap. Um, I think that that, there's a a big distinction there between the two. And look, me and Andrew did an episode, I think it was a couple of years ago now, where we went through the teams that uh, have breached the salary cap in a pretty significant way. And to be honest, it is easier to look at the teams that didn't breach the cap mm. in a significant way. It's the vast majority of them. I think we worked out there were maybe five or six teams that had never really broken the cap in a serious way. Um, and that's going back to the Canberra Raiders. Like, that was I one of the things. Bring that I, up. Yeah. I, well, Andrew talked about it. He replied to this tweet, and he was saying, well, the Raiders should lose their 1990 premiership. And it brings up something interesting about the Paramount Eels one in that I think at the time coming out of a grand final loss, you would say, no, I don't want to lose. I don't want to win their premiership by almost default because it was taken off the other team. I think as time goes on, that feeling dissipates where I'm sure, as we talked about, Hindmarsh and all that, they take the premiership now. I know for 1990s one, I can't see any of the Panthers players or any fans that would say, no, we don't want that premiership. Like, yeah, give it to us, you know? I think yeah, time well, sort of dulls that then. feeling. Sorry? Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I mean, you end up with four premierships. I think, you know, the big thing particularly for, for Parramatta is um, the, the the disappointment is probably what, at the time, you would have said, oh, I don't really want the premiership mm-hmm. um, in 2010. 
And then, yeah, you look back on it more than 10 years later and go, yeah, I'll, I'll gladly take that considering what we've been through since then. Mm. Um, but, you know, we are also in that bit of that awkward position of that was one grand final for us and then we were done. You know, Manly came back the following year and flogged them 40 to nil. Yeah. Um, and, and Penrith got their revenge in 91. Mm-hmm. Uh, they turned up and they beat the Raiders who were over the cap. Yeah. Um, whereas for us, it was kind of like that whole fairy tale just got blown up. And I guess that's probably what, what hurt as well is um, no one had, had banked on us in the middle of the season making the grand final. Um, and then to get that close and then find out that not only were you that close and you were a couple of questionable calls away from the premiership in the in the grand final, and uh, Tim Manor, I think, said last year, he was like, if that game went for another 10 minutes, we would have won that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's just a bit of a Vince Lombardi quote. They, they, didn't, they didn't beat us. We just ran out of time. <laughs> um, but, yeah, like you do all that work to, to drag yourself into the finals. You get to the grand final. Then you get beaten by a team that you find out shouldn't have shouldn't have been there in the first place. Yeah. Um, but the the thing that, that has also come out is, and I think I spoke about this with um, – on the hypothetic uh, rugby league podcast last year, because mm-hmm. we were looking at the Parramatta salary cap scandal, what what would have happened if they hadn't have been busted for that? Um, and obviously that's a bit different to what happened in Melbourne. First of all, that uh, we were completely and utterly incompetent in trying to execute some form of salary cap swindle, given <laughs> we had all that crap literally on the record at board meetings. Yeah. Um, but also that they took our nines title office. And I'm like, the nines doesn't have a salary cap. Otherwise, how much was Brad Fittler paid for playing for the Roosters uh, or Jason Croker for, for Canberra or Ruben Wickey? You know, yeah. those clubs rolled those players out in the nines. Are you telling me that either there's no salary cap, so why was it taking office? Or if there is, did they did they manage to fit those players under the cap? Like how much did they pay them? Um, yeah, look, I can, see, I can see both arguments. I don't know where I, I sort of sit with that. Like I can see where the NRL says, look, we we can find them, we can take points off them, stuff like that. But the only thing they've won is the nines competition, and we kind of yeah. have to take that. But that, I also see your argument as well. Yeah, that was my feeling. Just went, oh, we've got to take something off them because mm. that's what we did to Melbourne. But it's like you know, Melbourne cheated the competition where there was a salary cap, and the nines is like you have to have a, a minimum number of top 25 players, and the majority of teams, including us, were rolling out a good chunk of under 20s guys. Like I'm pretty sure in 2016, like Bevan French was the top try scorer. And I think he'd played, I don't know, like 10 games or something the previous season. Yeah. So it wasn't like we're rolling out the A grade side with, with, um, you know, a full complement of stars. It was kind of like, well, we're going to have a decent crack, but there's going to be some guys there like Beretta Faremo, I think was in that squad. Um, uh, Cameron King was in that squad. You know, they weren't exactly, uh, you know, chewing up a huge part of the salary cap to be there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I see that point of view too. I like it's a it's a tough one. I, I guess I probably lean on the side of if you get done for salary cap breaches, you just take everything you can. You yeah. know what I mean? And it's just it's bad luck. But yeah, technically, I I can also completely agree with you on that with the the nines competition, man, it wouldn't have been nice to have the nines back. Like, I think it should be club sides and international teams or back just to super it, league. Uh, sorry. Back to, the, back to the super league nines. Yeah. Yeah. It's just yeah. something di- like, make it different. I didn't like the close shop NRL nines. I thought it was boring. 
I mean, I just like the nines because I was football on in February. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You get a bit rugby league starved. And um, I mean, I really enjoyed the international nines for a couple of years ago, uh, end yeah. of 2019. Yeah, I went really... to that. I went to both days of that. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I definitely like a, a nines that, in, that includes uh, either some um, some teams from the Super League, you know, get get St. Helens down here, get um, get get Catalan, get, mm-hmm. um, you know, get Toulouse, get the French teams down here. Um, and then those players that aren't, you know, if you want to make it an international one, go ahead and make it an international one. Or if you just want to make it kind of club sites from the world, around the world, do that. Um, at the very least, you're going to get some really good entertainment before the start of the season. And you're not asking um, a full, you're not asking, you know, a full international tour to come down under mm-hmm. either in the middle of um, uh, the Super League season or at the start of the Super League season or, you know, at the start of the NRL season because that's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you can go, away, oh, look, you've only got to come down for a weekend and, you know, there's some prize money here. Um, I'm sure there'll be a fair few players that'd be happy to come down to Australia for, you know, two weeks or something in summer <laughs> when it's uh, snowing in northern England. Yeah, 100%. I, it would be cool to have it where it's like, and I've said this would be the best way to do the World Club Challenge, where you take the best club side from, say, eight nations or something, you know, and, and obviously the Catalan Dragons would be the one from France, even though they weren't the champions of their competition. But you take those sides and you give them a reward for being the best club side in their country. And I like, I think that's how the world club challenge should be. And I think it would be cool if it was the world, the world, I keep calling it the world nines. Cause that's what I, I grew up with it. If it, the world nines was like that sort of competition as well, but yeah, it had all the other NRL teams involved and just whoever the, the thing about nines footy is it's supposed to be fun and there's supposed to be very little in the way of, like rules of who can play who. It's just invite everyone, you know. Yeah. If there was a West Australian, you know, team that was a select team, chuck them in. I don't care. Just have as many teams as you want from wherever, representing whoever. Just make it fun. And everyone would love that. But the closed shop thing of the NRL nines didn't like that at all. I thought it was boring. Well, it just turns into a corporate event then. It's just it, something run by the NRL for the NRL's yeah. benefit. Yeah, and it just there's something fake about it. There's something I don't know. In many ways, you almost turn it into a one weekend big big bash. Um, yeah, you know, everyone said the big bash has gone too long. Well, if you just cram some nice tournaments one weekend in summer after the end of the big bash and go, you can come along for a full day, half a day, whatever you want. Because um, that's what I really like about rugby sevens. I went uh, a few years ago with uh, with my wife, and mm-hmm. she's not a big rugby league rugby union fan, but we turned up there for half a day to sit down and watch. You know, I think we got to see Australia play one game, but we watched all the a lot of the other nations play, and it's just good, entertaining sport without a lot of you know the rugby rules, which is ironically resembles more rugby league when you watch when you watch sevens, <laughs> um, and it does rugby union. I mean, okay, you got some partially contested scrums and partially contested lineouts, but it's a lot more um, rugby league looking than uh, rugby union looking. Yeah, uh, you know, when I went to the World Cup of Nines. What was that, 2019, I think it was, which feels like about 10 years ago. Yeah, it's been a long um, decade. Yeah. <laughs> it's uh, the thing, the memories I have of it, and I spent both days there, um, the memories I have of it aren't the Australian team playing. You know, it, no. it's of seeing all the other players play. It's about seeing the how they go in situations. Because I think with a lot of um, 
NRL talent and, and talent like players that have been involved in State of Origin or the Kiwis been involved in test matches as well, they've got an adaptability to a new situation, new surroundings, new teammates. So they they kind of slip straight into a, you know, a, a representative team mode. But then other teams, they haven't got quite that sort of regular regular sort of changes like that to their players. So you've got to see players out of their element a little bit and things like that. And I thought it was really interesting. And that's what I want to see from Knights Footy. I want to see I want to see something I'm not expecting. That's when it's fun. Yeah, I also thought that the the Nines offered um, some NRL players the chance to play for Australia that otherwise might not. You know, like, mm-hmm. I mean, as an ill supporter, watching Clint Gutherson and Mitchell Moses play for Australia, even if it's Nines, yeah, um, that was great because they wouldn't normally get that opportunity. I really can't see either of them pulling on an Australian jersey, first of all, given the Kangaroos hardly ever actually play. <laughs> um, but second of all, the just the depth in, in uh, the halves. You know, Mitch had to wait for... Nathan Cleary to go down injured and then kind of bail it out with Adam Reynolds. I don't, I, unless, unless Mitch has the greatest season of his career and, and significantly, um, you know, wins the Dally M, I can't see them picking him for the World Cup later this year. Mm-hmm. So I, I like that, that aspect of it that you've got some, some players play a style of football that suits them, but otherwise they wouldn't normally get picked in a representative side. Yeah. Yeah. True. I, I'm just thinking that, like, for Moses, He'd have to play the way he plays in the first six weeks of every season, the whole season, because he looks like a world beater in the first six weeks of every season. He's unbelievable. And then it falls off. Um, So what is the next sort of theme that you found in the replies? Kind of, I think it was just kind of naturally everyone went from discussing the teams breaking the salary cap to like, well, maybe we should get rid of the salary cap. Why do we still have it? Mm -hmm. Um, And I think, you know, case in point is, okay, go look at England. If you would yes. like these same two champions battling it out uh, season upon season, there's your sport. Go watch that. Um, mm-hmm. I'm a big Premier League supporter. I, I follow Liverpool, which obviously makes it a lot easier because mm-hmm. um, my team's not battling relegation. We're not sitting mid-table. Uh, yeah, we battled for top four last year, but we're second again this season. And um, it, If you're not one of those top sides, it can get very mundane very quickly. Yeah, You've got the thrill every week of winning or losing or drawing, but you know that you're not winning the comp. You know yeah. what I mean? And and to, in all honesty, for 16 teams to enter a competition every season and pretty much go, look, we're not winning it. It's, that's not a competition you actually, um, I want to say want because the Premier League's the largest sporting competition in the world. But I think from a, a rugby league survival point of view, that's not a good thing. Like last season, I think there was something like 70 plus percent accuracy in terms of tipping. Mm-hmm. Because of the the new rules, it became pretty easy to to, to know which which were the good sides, which are the bad sides, and and pretty confidently pick that the good sides are going to win every week. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can see the argument against the salary cap as well, um, because it's only been around for you know it's only been around for thirty years, and, and rugby league in Australia has been around for well over a hundred. Um, in that. Some teams are punished because they can't retain a junior because they're worth too much now. And I think there's got to be more um, caveats built into the, the whole salary cap system. I'd like it to be completely transparent. Um, you know, you post uh, the the pay of each of your players. Um, 
And that way, I think you have a lot more uh, faith in the system. Because right now, you know, myself included, there's not a hell of a lot of faith that the salary caps are actually being enforced properly. Um, I'll go back to Todd Greenberg's time, and he basically said, look, if you don't dob yourself in and we find out, then you're in trouble. That's basically like, well, go ahead and cheat if you want to, because we're not really going to check it. It's only if you get caught. That is a problem, um, which is a problem if, if you're um, trying to enforce a salary cap. The thing that, you know, if, if I go back to 1989 when they introduced it, I would not introduce a salary cap, but I'd introduce a points cap like they have in the, the, the NRLW. Mm-hmm. So what they say, well, what they've got is a, a point system and it's based on the number of rep games you play and who you represent outside club football. So I think it's like if you played Origin last year, this season you're worth 10 points and every club has the same number of points. that They, they do the same in the, in the lower grades in, in footy in New South Wales. If you play A grade, um, I think your your team has – 100 points or something that they can fill up each game. So mm-hmm. if you're playing against a side like Wentworthville, who could potentially go, hey, we're not going so well in Sydney Shield, but we could go win the A-grade competition, it's preventing them from dropping their entire Sydney Shield side into A-grade. Right? Yeah. Because if you're in Sydney Shield, you're worth 10 points. Yeah, yeah. So you, do, you apply that to the NRLW. You play for New or Queensland last year, well, you're worth 10 points this year. And if you played them in 2020 you're worth this many points in 20, and you go back like that or you know you've played for the kiwis or you've played for england um i think that's a much fairer way to structure a competition because it's objective you know your value of brandon smith it might be different to my value of brandon smith and it might be different to the contract he signs with the roosters and you can talk about the sombrero all you like but if there's a, a clear, okay, Brandon played for New Zealand most recently. Uh, he's now worth 10 points. You go, well, you can't argue with that because it's the same for every bloke who's in the competition. But uh, don't you think that would still force players? Like, say, you look at a team like Penrith, right? And, and I use them as an example because they have kind of gone from being a middling team to being the premiers in the space of three seasons, three or four seasons, very quickly. Hmm. And... Like, I could see where, and they've also had a lot of players go into representative teams very quickly as well. You're still going to have players that they've developed under a cap and under a points cap system forced out of the club because of the points cap. I mean, at the end of the day, you're still trying to spread talent around, right? And, yeah, yeah. And you, you could also then build in um, the ability for, for points to be deducted from your total if you have players that you've had in the system, say, since they were in SG ball or something. So mm-hmm. you still get discounts that way. And, you know, you're still recognized for, for that because if you're applying a discount for a monetary value, at the end of the day, you're still going to get players forced out, you know, yeah. because Nathan Cleary, 25 grand off his contract is nothing now. Nothing, nothing. It, was, it, was, it would have been something three or four years ago. Yeah. There's nothing now. And it's the same with, you know, Jerome Luai or Brian To'o. Um, those type of guys, they're worth a lot of money now. And the salary cap dispensation the NRL hands out is, is pretty bloody poor. Um, and like I said, they really need to um, increase the amount of, of, of dispensation they give the clubs that develop their own talent. Yeah. Uh, but in saying that, the, the whole point of a salary cap or even any form of points cap is to spread the talent around. 
mm-hmm. and to ensure that you know you can drag yourself up off the bottom of the table and become competitive again. Uh, you know, even look at Parramatta in 2018. Um, we picked up some guys like you know we picked up Regan Campbell Gillard at the end of that year in Junior Paulo. We got them because their clubs are under a bit of a salary cap squeeze. Penrith took one look at RCG's contract and went, oh, that's ridiculous. Yeah, um, yeah. We need him off the books, even if we've got to pay some of it. That's and, what and- Phil Gould does to a lot of contracts he signs to players. He he signs them and it's like, great. And then 18 months later, he says, wow, that's a bad contract. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hey, can you, you take him off our hands, we'll pay you to do that. Yeah. <laughs> it's worked out for everyone, really. Um, Penrith ended up with a couple of good forwards. We ended up with a very good forward for, you know, nowhere near what he was worth at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, so, you know, if you've got some kind of talent equalization, otherwise, again, you're looking at the EPL. Like, I know Man City basically warehouses players. They go, yeah. how much you want? I'll pay you $70 million for him. You can come here and sit on the bench. And you've got other clubs in the middle, mid-table going, I can't afford that, but I could do with that type of player. And, you know, everyone just shrugs, shrugs their shoulders and go, well, that's that's the EPL for you. And they do it with a lot of young players too. And I think that one of the interesting things about their system is they do it with like that. I mean, the top clubs just hoover up talent from all over the world and they'll mothball them almost. But then they also look at what they can get for those players on the transfer market. So they've, you've got that third element on top of that as well, which yeah. I mean, it's not good. It's yeah, just not it's, good. It's, it's becoming harder now because of Brexit. So you can't get players as young as they used to be. Um, oh, right. If they're outside England, mm-hmm. um, but I know I know Liverpool's academy, they've kind of used that as the the, the way to to get some extra wages mm-hmm. um, out of players. So it's kind of like they'll develop maybe eight nine Premier League quality players a season, but if you want to play for Liverpool, maybe only one or two of those will actually make it for the club, and the rest go out and loan or get or get sold, and they might get sold for five million pounds. But, you know, you sell five guys for five million pounds, that's 25 million you've made, mm-hmm. essentially, because you might, your expenditure might be one or two million on the entire academy setup, you know. Um, but, you know, getting back to a, a salary cap is, I think it would also, if you had a points cap instead of a salary cap, it, it takes some of the pressure off the young guys, you know, because you're not going to, well, you shouldn't really be paying a bloke a million dollars a season if he hasn't played a rep game yet. But do you think under a point, say you did have a points cap, I think with those young stars, they would still get paid big money. I think they'd still get paid big money, but... Because they'd be the valuable players. Like, say, a Kalen Ponga, when he's at the Cowboys still, he becomes one of the most valuable players in the game just for the fact that he hasn't played rep football yet and he hasn't played too much first-grade football yet, but he's clearly a first-grade player. So if you could get, say, say you could get, uh, you know, two or three players along the lines of him, they become the more, most valuable players in your squad because they're worth, say they're worth, I don't know, a, a point because they've played first grade football or they've played less than 50 first grade games. Like those players are what you need really to win a premiership, first of all. It's, it's not just just stars, it's the... It's the players that have just come into your squad on their first contract that they're the ones that kind of fill out your team. And I think that you would still get those players on big money, but their their points would be low still. Yeah, I mean, you you could still kind of value a player however you want to value them. 
Mm. But it also means you don't get the situation where uh, a team's entire starting 13 is full of rep players. You know, I remember I was over a, a mate's place, I think it might have been 2014, and I was watching, it was, it was a finals match, it's a Roosters supporter, and um, their entire 13 for this preliminary final, I think, from memory, they were all rep players. Yeah. Their entire starting 13, and you go, how can you seriously, and I'm not going to, I'm not just trying to, you know, needle the Roosters over this. Yeah, um, but they're the worst. Yeah, they're definitely the worst. Let's be they, they should be booted into Bondi Beach and never allowed to return. Bondi Beach? What about the sun? What's wrong with the sun? Well, Bondi Beach is closer and, you know, um, the, the borders are only just opening up. So, oh, that's um, true. you know, nice and cheap solution is just Bondi. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I, I get what you're saying there. You can still easily overvalue a player. But I, I'm yeah. also on the, the, the idea that it just – it gives you a more – if you're not going to open up um, player salaries to be public mm-hmm. to say, look, our competition is even, um, then a points cap is is a lot more objective. You know, you're not going to be arguing. And then teams can play – can pay players, you know, whatever they think they're worth. Um, but you're also not going to then get in the position of, um, you know – millions and millions of dollars being tied up in, in, in a couple of players and that then screwing your salary cap up. Um, I think it also means that, you know, I haven't, I haven't refined the entire system, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it also, you could also look at what's the maximum number of points a player can jump in a season, you know? Mm-hmm. So if he's a one-point player or two-point player and he happens to be an origin bolter, um, you could go, okay, he'll be a 10-point player in two years' time, not next year. Right, he'll be a five-point player next year because mm-hmm. of the fact that he was he was only one point last year. So you could you could look at a, a cap on the number of points a player can jump in a single season. Um, and I mean that that's probably more not so much origin, but the the guys that play for New Zealand because you get some New Zealand sides that they roll out, um, they'll pick someone virtually out of reserve grade. Like they did that with um, with Chris Ninu. He played one first grade game, mm-hmm. and then he was playing for New Zealand the next week. Um, so that, that, that type of thing, like you said, you know, if you're the Panthers and you all of a sudden have six players playing Origin after you had one player the previous year, mm-hmm. that can cause a problem with your with your cap. And then I mean, you can look at things like soft caps and um, if you just wanted to keep a salary cap, look at a soft cap. So, you know, in a three-year period, you have to spend less than $30 million. And however you want to structure that's up to you, but each season you've got to spend 90% of that cap up to 105% of your cap. Yeah, I see what you mean. So I, I don't like the NBA salary cap system, which is a soft cap, where mm. they basically, for people that don't know, they've got the salary cap, but you can spend, spend quite quite a lot beyond that, um, depending on how you structure contracts and how you trade for contracts and things like that. But every dollar you spend over the salary cap, you get taxed. I think it's three times at the moment, something like that. You get taxed by the league for it. So say you're spending $10 million over your cap, you've got to pay the league, I think it's $30 million. The thing is, you get some teams that are like, yeah, that's the tax and, and we don't care about it, we'll pay the tax. Um, and, and then it, you get a situation where, I mean, the NBA, it's not too dissimilar to the Premier League in the sense of you start the season, there's only a few teams can really win it. And there's the vast majority of teams are not even close to winning it. 
And I don't think that's good personally. No. Um, well, you've had in the past decade, you've had one team kind of outside of the big five win the 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 uh, the Premier League, and that was Leicester. Yeah. Uh, the rest of the winners have been City, Liverpool, United, Chelsea. Now Arsenal's not even in that, mm-hmm. which is which Crazy. is insane. Yeah. You know? Um. Yeah. And and you don't want a competition where only a handful of of clubs. I mean, there are still going to be the good teams and the bad teams in rugby league. Mm-hmm. Um. We've got one benefit in that it's not a first past the post system. So you can get in the finals, and they'll tell you every year our finals are a different different ball game. Mm-hmm. Um, and it it does even out, uh, I think, a little bit in the finals. And we've got that ability where you can get the odd upset or the odd surprise from eight spot making a preliminary final or something. Um, but yeah, I, you know, obviously removing the salary cap is not something you want to do in the yeah. NRL. Um, it's it's going to be. It would very easily be exploited by. I think the the the, the clubs that will benefit the most from that would be Melbourne, the Roosters, Brisbane, Souths, probably Parramatta and Penrith, and probably it's, it's probably, probably the Bulldogs too with with mm-hmm. Bill Gould's connections. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because you look at those sides, they're either in terms of Melbourne and you know one team town, um, and they've got a lot of. Uh, sponsorship revenue down there already. Um, you look at, obviously, Parramatta and Penrith, massive junior divisions alongside big leagues clubs. Uh, even if I know Parramatta's a leagues club, I don't think contributed anything last year. I think financially the, the football club made a profit. Um, and then you've got Brisbane up there doing what Brisbane does, you know, with their their thoroughbreds and <laughs> their mid-2000s uh, salary cap dealings themselves, right? Mm-hmm. Take them. You know, at the very least, you're given the the illusion of of even competition, even if they are using TPAs and the like. You remove the salary cap, and then all bets are off. Right? The Titans will probably disappear. Um, so, I mean, when you look at a lot of the sides that got removed around um, either in the '80s or or following Super League, um, particularly the '80s, it was it was financial insolvency. Yeah, they couldn't yeah. keep themselves running. They couldn't pay players. They couldn't pay this. They couldn't pay that. Um, and I know the NRL uh, at the moment props up a lot of clubs and, and they provide every club with more money than they need to pay player wages to ensure that's never a problem. But, um, you know, removing the salary cap is just, that's just asking for trouble. I don't think you want to go down that, down that path. Yeah. And the, the thing too, that people forget about the salary cap is it was really brought in to stop clubs spending themselves to death. Exactly. Um, so there's that. I, I don't agree with having player salaries, public i think that that's a private issue um and i've always said that from the very beginning i i think that um there's there's one reason why you would want play salaries to be um public and there's probably a hundred reasons why it wouldn't and it's the reasons that i can't even think of that are probably the best reasons why play salaries shouldn't be public although i think that we generally get a very general idea about who are the million dollar players. Like we know Tamalolo, for instance, mm. is on a million. We know that Cleary's on a million. You know, we we know that Gutherson's on about eight hundred. You know, eight fifty, maybe set. Like he's, we kind of know whereabouts they yeah, are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's um, it's really the middle middle of the road players that you're not sure of. Yeah, um, yeah. Or, or the players that sometimes a team will pick up a player and you think, man, how did they get him? You know, how did they? Like, and I don't want to be picking on the Roosters again, 
but I'm going to because it's fun. Um, how did the Roosters? What was Sonny Bill Williams on when he came back to the Roosters? Like, yeah, yeah, you know. And and then we've had issues in the past where, you know, remember when Israel Folau was going to sign with the Parramatta Eels, and the NRL said, well. No, they valued it, him higher than the contract we offered. Yeah, and I like I don't like things like that. No. And I could see where the Eels were paying him less. Like I could see where Israel Flowers like I will take less. The Eels are like we're only going to offer you less anyway. And the NRL stepped in and wouldn't allow that to happen. And I thought that that was wrong. Well, that uh, was a face saving expedition from the NRL after. Um, St. George got uh, Mark Gaznia back mid-season in 2008. And I thought that was wrong. 2010. Yeah, yeah, and they paid him like peanuts. And the NRL was like, oh, we can't have that happen again. So we're not going to let Parramatta recruit Israel Folau, which in the long run um, doesn't bother me. <laughs> After yeah, seeing yeah, him in the past it, few years. Turns out fine. Israel, don't do that. Yeah. I'm going to do it anyway. Well, he's sacked. Well, there's a court case. I love the way that he... Uh, there was like, I'm going to fight to get in the NRL. I'm going to fight, 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 fight. I'm going to Japan, see ya. Yeah. <laughs> it's just hilarious. They're going to let me pay and they're going to pay me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They, um, they, no one really knows who I am over there anyway. <laughs> it's weird. He just disappeared. It's very yeah. strange. Um, but yeah, look, I think that, I think in the past the salary cap hasn't worked as well. And I think that that's been a function of how small the NRL salary cap was at times. Like, it's weird to think that, I think that when it first came in after the Super League war, everyone was trying to get down to something like 3.25 million, mm. which is like on some teams that's four players. It's three and, manly. Yeah, yeah, it's it's it, and that's crazy to think about. Now we're up to, like I think at the moment it's around about 10 million. It's close yeah. enough to 10 million, and so I think that to rot the salary cap by huge amounts now. Like you're obviously going out to say 15 million, which it, it, I think that that becomes really apparent. And I think when you look at that and you look at the fact that all clubs, are, their, their player salaries are covered plus $3 million. And you look at them as from the business side of things where a lot of clubs would be saying, well, you know what? We don't really need to spend huge amounts more because we can we can be really financially solvent under the current system we've got. And I think that when you add that to all of the teams that have been in the finals, apart from the West Tigers, and all the teams that have won NRL premierships or have been in the grand final over the last, say, let's say, 13 years or so, I tend to think the salary cap works pretty well. And I might be in the minority there. And I understand you can look at some teams and say, Man, that looks a bit weird. But I think for, say, so for instance, for Melbourne, I think that Craig Bellamy is an anomaly, right? I think that... He is. His winning percentage is over 70%. It's the the best, I'm pretty sure it's the best of all time. Of all time, yeah. Now, I think he's the main anomaly at the storm. And I'm not taking away what they did with the cap. But I think right now, if you put another coach in charge of that storm team... I think they finish fifth, sixth. Like, they've got some yeah. really good players, but I think he gets the absolute maximum out of them. I think the, for the Penrith Panthers, I think the anomaly there is their junior system, you know? And I think that with the last two years, what we've seen out of those clubs, I think that another anomaly has been some other teams copping some pretty bad injuries. 
and the change in the rules just happened to kind of play into a lot of the strengths of the Storm and the Panthers. And so I think that the last, well, mainly last year where the seat, it was just a two horse race really at the end of the day. And the, the, you know, we saw the, the, uh, South Sydney Rabbitohs get into the grand final and they did extremely well, but they had a bit of an X factor in their side too with like, I mean, Cody Walker's a magician, you know, they, Adam Reynolds and Walker had been together for so long. You've got, the beach sprinter at hooker has been, you know, there's so many yeah. different things that come together. Um, I, I, I think, think, sorry, go on. Yeah. I think when you, when you look at particularly recently, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I agree. There's not really a side that you look at and you go, well, how are they, how are they legal? You mm-hmm. know, because I think, you know, the more that you increase the salary cap, the harder it actually gets to cheat it because you've got mm-hmm. to go so much more over to get an advantage, mm-hmm. you know, whereas before when, you know, I think when Melbourne cheated the cap, it was at $5 million, yeah. you know, so you spend an extra million. I think the, the, the base salary was like 70,000 or something or 60,000. Okay. They weren't handing boats to those players. Um, but, you know, spending an extra million dollars is a huge advantage, right? Mm-hmm. That's, that's, that's what that's, that's 20% of the cap that you're over. If it's uh, a million on top of 5 million, um, whereas now, if you try to go a million dollars over the cap, that's ten percent. Yeah, and the thing is, too, say the uh, say the cap. Let's say the cap's ten. If you we found out a team was spending uh, eleven million dollars, it wouldn't be great. But it's not like they're destroying the competition. You know, it's, I, it, like I, I feel as though if it was say seven hundred and fifty grand over the cap, a fine would probably be fine for that. You know, and that's a whack. You take that back, as you say. I mean, th- th- they probably take years. the they probably take some points off them. You know, whatever stage of the season it is, saying you're mm-hmm. over the cap for this period, we're going to fine you and take some points off you. But you won't get playing for no points like Melbourne. Mm-hmm. Um, and if they won a title, I could see them just stripping it because I think that's the pretty much the standard the NRL's now set. Yeah. Um, pretty much saying if you win a competition and you're over the salary cap and we catch you, you're losing that premiership. I, I can't see them not doing that after the Melbourne decision. Yeah, they have to. They have to. You know, otherwise, otherwise, it's what's the point? Like I said at the start, what's the point of uh, enforcing a salary cap if you then allow a team to get the premiership? I would guess that in the participation agreement between clubs and the league at the moment, there's probably a, a percentage of the cap that is put in to those contracts that they say, like, if you're over this amount percentage-wise of the overall salary cap, then it becomes the the real repercussions, you know, because they do have the they do have the fines for if, as we talked about earlier, if say a player goes on some incredible run from being a rookie and all of a sudden they're playing test footy and it's like, wow, we had him down for being a hundred thousand dollar player. Now all of a sudden, with all of his bonuses, he's up over you know two fifty. But yeah. Uh, but yeah, uh, look, I I think that. I think that if you broke the cap now, it would be so outrageously obvious. But then again, you look back at them storm teams and it was so outrageously obvious. <laughs> you know, yeah. so. The entire, pretty much the entire Queensland and Australian spine. Yeah. Um, in that side, alongside a pretty star studded forward pack as well. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. then Green and Israel Falau in the, in the back line alongside those guys, you go, how did we not think they weren't over the cap? <laughs> like, yeah, the, the quality of players that they had, 
Um, we, we were all young and stupid. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I tell you, the other thing that's in favour of the cap worker now is that you look at the top teams, Storm and the Panthers and that, they, they lose talent. Like the top teams, yep. if you win a premiership, you usually lose talent. The only team I can think of that doesn't normally lose too much talent, and you know their names and we've talked about them a couple of times, um, they're the Roosters. So what's the next thing? What's the next controversial sort of thing that people so, gravitate towards? There's a lot of discussion around the final series and how that, that operates. Um, mm-hmm. I had some absolute uh, space cadets saying they wanted a top five again which yeah, honestly is, is just symptomatic of so much that's wrong with rugby league. You look into the past for no reason other than just nostalgia. Like, oh, back in my day we had a top five and that was a fine system. It's like we got a 16-team competition now and it's going out to 17 next year. Yeah. In what world do you think a five-team te- five final series is actually going to improve the product? Um, and there were also some decent arguments around the McIntyre system being put back in. Um, because they like the idea that third or fourth could get eliminated mm-hmm. um, if all the bottom sides win their first week. But mm-hmm. then what's the point of, of playing for top four if you don't get an advantage? Or the other question is, should you get a top? Should you get an advantage for finishing third and fourth? Because yeah. quite often those positions are, are sorted out based on for and against. Yeah, and look, I think top two is, is fine. I think you finish mm-hmm. in top two of the NRL. You've had a... Damn, you've you've done well. Um, three or four, I I kind of agree with you. It's like I'm sorry. At some point, you know, you're not you're not the top two teams. You know, um, I, I like the McIntyre system. I know that a lot of people didn't like it, and there was a lot of whinging from the media because my guess is that it didn't work with their schedules and they couldn't write mm-hmm. ahead of time about certain things. But um, I I liked a lot of the aspects of you know every every round of the finals, you're getting rid of the two worst teams, the two lowest ranked teams. I thought it was really easy to follow personally. And yeah, I understand not knowing who you'll play next week wasn't great, but you know, there were real positives about it. The thing I don't like about the current final system is in the first week of the finals, the best teams have the harder games. And I think that's ridiculous. Yeah. Where's the advantage if you finish first and second, okay, you got to play the other two top, Top four teams. Um, mm. I think if you're going to change it, I'd look at the NFL and not not talking wild cards or conferences or anything like that. Mm-hmm. But teams one and two get the first week of the finals off. Yep. And every game is elimination. I agree with that. I, I would love that. Something very weird about watching finals match. And there's two games that doesn't really matter the result. Like, yeah. okay, one team gets a week off after this, and the other team's playing elimination, but. I know as an Eels fan, when we did that in 2020, when we finished, I think it was 2020, we finished top four. Watching the first week of the finals was just, was just weird. Mm-hmm. Like you're going, well, we could win this or we could lose it, but we're not out of the finals. Yeah. <laughs> it, it was a very, very awkward way to, to, to watch a game um, because you're still invested in the outcome, but it's not like, like do or die this week. Yeah. Um, and as I said, it's it's so weird seeing, knowing when you watch two games out of the four that are on the weekend, oh, well, it doesn't really matter the result here because no one's actually getting knocked out. Yeah, it's 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 a strange one. I, I completely agree. I would love just a straight top two teams get the week, first week off. Uh, 
you know, and then from then on, and it's just a it's just a knockout comp from then on. I think that would be great. And look, if you're the top side and you lose against the probably the lowest rated opponent that goes forward, man, you should have won. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> what do you want? You know, it's it's you don't get things handed to you under that system. I like that. In terms of how many teams are in the final series, um, you know, I remember the final five was was fine at the time. I think times have changed now. I think if you look at the last probably half of the NRL season, we don't talk too much about the top two teams in the competition and who's going to finish where. There's a little bit of talk about the minor premiership, but not too much. Most of the talk is about who is going to finish at the lower end of the table, and that keeps so many teams involved in it. Mm. Um, I think we've seen with the NBA and how they changed their playoff system last season so that they had the play-in tournament, and it really changed the outlook of clubs and how clubs manage their squads and how they... You know, inst- instead of tanking, you've got a lot more teams thinking, well, you know what, we might jag a, a playoff, you know, series here if we yeah. just add a player or two. I think that a similar thing happens in the NRL and it keeps the vast majority of teams involved in it in up to the last, say, three months of the competition. And I think that's a good thing. I think that removing that sort of hope from so many teams would be r- a really bad thing for the competition. Yeah, so I was looking at the table from last year. So the Roosters finished fifth on 34 points mm-hmm. and the Eels sixth on 32. Then you've got to go six points back to seventh. So Newcastle finished on 26. Mm-hmm. And the Titans finished on 20, 22 points. They finished in eighth. And then also on 22 was Cronulla and the Raiders. And then you had the Dragons, Warriors, and Tigers all on 18. So until the last, you know, three, four weeks of the season, you had 13 teams, Yeah, you know, involved in the end of the season. And if you move to a top five, that ends, you know, four weeks out yeah. from the finals. And you have one team that might get into the top five. And then it loses so much impetus for the lower clubs. Particularly also because there's no advantage then to playing to the end of the season, really. I think you'd see a lot more teams put the queue in the rack. Um, yeah, and I think you'd see it at all levels of the table as well. Like if you'd finally, if you'd made that top five, especially for the top two. I mean, we see it now. You make the top two and you've got a gap. You start resting players. Players start getting funny injuries. Um, yeah. And I think you'd see that right through the competition. What happens in the Premier League when you get mid-table teams go, we're safe from relegation, we can't go up any further on the table, we're just going to take it easy and no one get injured. Because I know um, as Michael Bridges, he played for Leeds before he came out to Australia, and he said quite often you'd get to the last six weeks of the season, you're safe from relegation, you, all you want to do is, is have your feet up on a beach somewhere in Spain or the south of Italy. Um, you're not going to go in every week and, and do those 50-50 challenges and try and win the ball. You don't want to break your leg and spend your off-season in a cast. Yeah. Um, so he said, you know, for those mid-table teams, there's, there's no emphasis there. So I think a top eight, um, even when you move to 17 teams, I think you just you leave it at the top eight. I couldn't, I couldn't picture a top 10, even if eventually the, the competition moved to 20. Mm-hmm. I think once you're getting below eight, once you get more eight, more than eight teams, you're looking at teams with with pretty bad losing records, uh, qualifying for the finals, and that, in my opinion, shouldn't really be happening. Yeah, like last year was a big anomaly in the fact that Newcastle had a 50% winning record, 
and the Titans only won 10 and lost 14, but they still qualified. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're making finals, you should have a winning record, basically. Yeah. I, yeah. I don't think you need to expand it beyond the eight. I think you keep it at eight. You don't want to shorten it because, like you said, it'll take a lot of the impetus out for a lot of those clubs that are around the middle of the table, the ones that would be battling for top eight, then removed. Um, so you keep it at eight and you get enough interest in towards the last round of the season, as we had last year. It ended up being um, a, a blowout from during the Warriors game, I think, mm. that resulted in the Titans getting getting into the eight. So you, otherwise, and this is also from a broadcaster's perspective, I don't think you'd get the broadcasters agreeing to that because they're going, or our ratings will go down. Yeah, yeah. At the end of the season, and we don't want that. Yeah, the only way you could, the only way it would work is if you shorten the season once again. The broadcasters want more football, if anything, not less. Yeah. Um, you know the difference between, uh, I would say sane people in rugby league like you and me, and obviously we're the same people in rugby league, <laughs> versus the people that are running the game at the moment, is that we don't we don't make rash decisions based on what happened in the last five minutes. We kind of look at a big sample size and say, you know what, last season was an anomaly. We got to go on everything. And it seems like the NRL doesn't do that. They kind of think, well, what happened in the last weekend of footy? Let's change the rules again. Um, yeah, let's change the rules to offset the rules that we brought in last year. Oh, knee jerk reaction. Seriously, it's it's so ridiculous. Um, so, okay, so we've done the finals. Were there any other things that sort of jumped out? Oh, at expansion, expansion's always. I think whenever you bring up rugby league mm-hmm. in any form of discussion context, expansion we brought up. It's like a rule of, of footy. Yeah, right. you go anywhere, and someone's going to bring up Super League. They're going to bring up being bring back the Bears. They they're going to bring up you know Adelaide or Perth. Mm-hmm. Um, so with that, there was plenty of suggestions about oh we should have kept Adelaide or should have kept Perth. Now I'm a big believer in expansion for for rugby league. You're going to call it the national competition. Well, it's going to be more than just the Eastern Seaboard and one team in New Zealand. Mm-hmm. Um, but I can also see why they shuttered as many clubs as they did at the end of of Super League because the game didn't have the financial stomach after it burnt through so much cash in such a short period of time mm-hmm. in the previous three years. So trying to get teams to fly to Perth and come back seemed ridiculous, but it's being done in the AFL and it's being done in the A-League. And the A-League is worth knowing what the NRL is. So, yeah. you know, if they can manage that, I'm sure we can manage that. And, I mean, if, if you want to just go out, just go to Adelaide, well, then the, the trip's a bit shorter. But also, you, you see that you've got you've got fans there. When they take Origin there, those games sell out. Um, yeah. The the idea of bring back the Bears that's just dumb. Yeah, I agree. It, I I honestly uh, it grates me whenever some whenever you get someone getting up and going, "Well, you got to bring back the Bears." I'm like, "No, you don't. Do you want another competition full of Sydney based teams? Let's go back to 1980. Um, look, 81 to 83 and 86, perfect. Uh, we can leave it there. Um. You know, remove the salary cap, hand us back, you know, an entire team of legends. Um, I'm more than happy if you just want to play 81 to 83 all over again. Mm-hmm. Um, but the game's not going to grow if it's just Sydney-based. You turn into England. Yeah, I was, into, I was just about to say that. You turn we've, we've into carved, England. We've carved out a competition where you're only going to play in Yorkshire and Lancashire. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the strongest club is going to be based in Merseyside. And they're going to win nine competitions out of, like, 20 Mm-hmm. Have either out now, twenty four or twenty five, um, and you know the, the 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 teams that used to challenge them are, are nowhere near what they used to be. Bradford's been relegated, and, and Leeds is hopeless. 
Yeah, and like four champions, four different clubs since 96. Uh, and one of them, you know, it doesn't even play in the top grade anymore. It's, it, it is exactly that. They, it is the perfect example of what would happen. What happens when you don't expand? And thank God that in the 80s, even a little bit before that, the authorities in Australian Rugby League knew we had to expand the competition because, man, it would be a sad, sad competition if we hadn't. Yeah, yeah, and um, the the funny thing is in England, the, the team that's challenging St. Helens is Catalan from the south mm-hmm. of France. Mm-hmm. You know, the team that got promoted was Toulouse. Mm-hmm. It's not the English teams that are getting, that are getting promoted or, or challenging the, the, the best team in the competition. It's the expansion sides. Um, and I think you even, have, you even have to look at it from a Sydney-centric point of view is, okay, the Tigers, it's, it's not 1908 anymore. Mm-hmm. You don't need to call yourself Wests if you're based at Leichhardt and Asheville. Yeah. You no, know? there's there's no, there's not a lot for rugby league to gain by just staying there. Um, not saying that I want the Tigers to never play at Leichhardt again because there's still a part of me that's that's romantic and you like the idea of Leichhardt Oval Sunday afternoon, um, a bit of a throwback to the old days. But the Tigers don't have an identity right now. They've they should be the kings of Southwest Sydney. They yeah. should run the Campbelltown area. They should run Liverpool. It should be, you know, black, gold, and white all through that area. Mm-hmm. And it's not. And they should be based at Campbelltown, and that should be their home ground. Okay, chip some money into the state government, get them to upgrade it a bit, make it into a, a really good local ground. Um, but it doesn't help when they're building their head office at Concord. Oh, it's how ridiculous. Can grow, how can you grow the Southwest, which is – Honestly, I believe one of the most untapped areas of, of rugby league potential when you're not based there, particularly given that the the A League has gone in there with Macarthur mm-hmm. and literally sco- scooped out part of Western Sydney and gone Southwest. You Macarthur, you have your own team, you have your own pathway to professional soccer, and we're in rugby league who've been able to get down there for a hundred years basically and gone. Ah, oh, we're not going to do that this year. The Tigers are just going to keep being this nomadic side that plays games at, you know, this, the Olympic Stadium and plays games at Parramatta, plays games at Leichhardt, plays games at Campbelltown, and they're not actually going to have a home ground. And, like, how do you you build a, a big, massive um, supporters group if you don't actually have a home? Mm. Yeah. And, and like, I agree with you. I think there should be – and the league has talked about it, building a new stadium down in the southwest – of Sydney. Uh, it's the fastest growing area of Sydney. It is going to be bigger than most cities in Australia very soon. It's got its own airport. Like, I don't understand why the Tigers wouldn't be saying, look, if we can get a stadium built that's easy to get to down in that area, um, you know, just copy paste what they've got at Parramatta Stadium, um, copy paste what they're going to build at Penrith Footy Stadium, or whatever. Just get a new stadium down there and stay there and make that your area. Uh, It's kind of crazy that they, if they don't do it, someone else will do it. That's the Mm. thing, you know, and it's, I don't know who it would be that's going to do that because, you know, the Bulldogs, they kind of are playing at the Olympic Stadium and I think they're kind of holding out hope that the Olympic Stadium will eventually get upgraded so it's, a rectangular stadium, which needs to happen. I think that's underway at the moment. I think 
I th- I thought that they put that off. They put that off for a while. I think it will happen. Mm. I think they just need to. We kind of need to get maybe five yeah. years past COVID. Yeah. But, um, and they've also yeah. got Belmore that they they still go back to, and I kind of see that as that's what the, the Tigers could be looking at. You mm-hmm. know, you build your your nice new big stadium in Southwest Sydney. Um, you play out of there most of the time, and then you have it back to Leichhardt for a couple couple of rounds a year. Couple of rounds. So you still yeah. got the the Balmain side of the the mergers happy. You still get the fans going. I still want to go to Leichhardt, Leichhardt and watch the footy. But let's be honest, Leichhardt's a relic. Yep. Um, there's still what wooden bench seats there. There's still the the, the hills and stuff. Um, it's great to, to to look at football there, but it's not a modern stadium that a billion dollar game should be playing out of. So if you want to play a couple of games there, you're fine. But your home should be a big modern stadium that is easy to access from not just the local area, but people who want to come from interstate to watch games. Or if, uh, you know, you've got a, a transit area around the stadium that it's easy to access. Cause I know Leichhardt's not particularly, you know, commuter friendly. So look, I've, I've never been there and that's why, because mm-hmm. the idea of going to a footy game and look, I I have to drive a, a good hour depending on the traffic. But Sydney traffic, it's between an hour and three hours. You never know. Yeah. But uh, to then search for parking and then to sit on a hill, it, that doesn't appeal to me. I'm sorry. And I, like I love rugby league, I really do. But I'm just not going to do that. I've got better things to do with my time. So, and that's why I haven't been to Leichhardt Oval. I'm just not going to do that. I'd rather go to. A, Parramatta Stadium, where I know I've got parking. I know there's all of the good food facilities. I know they've got plenty of toilets. I know they've got plenty of seats with all great viewing. I know if it rains, I'm not going to get soaking wet. That's mm. what people want yeah. today. Yeah. So my dad says the same thing whenever his commentators crapping on about, oh, sitting on the old hill. And he's like, the old hill at the SCG was trash. Yeah. He's just like, you had to fight with people to get a spot, right? People would take your spot. And, you know, they'd get hammered and they'd be a pain in the ass. And that's what sport was in the 70s and the 80s. You know, or you, or you, you, had, um, you had Cumberland Oval with a dirt track around the field and mm-hmm. the, the, um, the, the grandstand that should have been condemned long before it was burnt down. Um, you shouldn't have that as part of your stadium, right? I, I get that people want the, the nostalgia of, uh, you know, I can still go to an old ground where all the legends played. Like, I'm not saying you have to knock Leichhardt down. I'm just saying you either upgrade it or it doesn't become a feature of your of your schedule anymore because mm. it's not what the the new generations of fans want to want to sit at and want to watch. We've all they, got we've all got gigantic high definition TVs, right? And we can all order pizza for the price of parking. Like that's what you're you're fighting against, and I and we can all sit at home with our phones in the dry, in comfort, you know. And and people sometimes forget that. I remember sitting on the the hill at Parramatta Stadium. I remember being there once, and it was during Super League, and they had the Angels playing at like half time on the hill, and I was sat next to two speakers that were seriously they must have been fifteen feet tall and could not hear shit in the second half of the game because <laughs> my ears had been blown out. But, uh, you know, the the grass would be wet. You'd be sliding down it, you yeah. know, and the tickets were cheap. But, damn, give me a seat. And, it, you know, the thing I like about Parramatta Stadium is, yes, it looks different, but that is the same patch of dirt 
that Ray Price ran around on and Peter Sterling ran around on. You know, it's the same place. And exactly. it's not about the buildings around it. It's about the this is the place where those players played. That's the important part of it. Exactly. I, I had no issues when they knocked down the old Parramatta Stadium mm-hmm. and, and built the new one because I'm like, we needed the new one at the time. It was mm-hmm. the old one was outdated. There was it was very difficult to access for disabled people. The facilities weren't great, and I know that they improved it gradually over the years, um, but it was nowhere near what it had to be for for what Parramatta is today. Yeah, uh, you know the, the other the other discussion around expansion too um, is that I'd like to see us definitely go outside of a traditional rugby league ground, mm-hmm. go to Adelaide or Perth or a second New Zealand side, something that actually says we actually want to expand the the viewership. Because I, I kind of got why they went for a second Brisbane team, because I've been talking about that for pretty much since the Broncos came in. Yeah. Got to have a second Brisbane team in there. So I kind of get that. That's but... fix, That's kind of fixing a mistake from going probably 25 years ago at this point, which I, I agree with you. It's like, it's not the sexy option, but it's the one that, makes so much more money and it fixes a mistake from 25 years ago. Exactly. Right. And I think the NRL now having the experience of um, bringing in the Titans, now bringing in the, Dol- the Dolphins, they basically got two case studies to look at when they want to expand outside the Eastern Seaboard. Mm. And they can go, well, what, what, what's worked? What hasn't? What support do they need over in Adelaide? or over in Perth, and how do we give it to them to ensure they're competitive from the first year? I mean, even Melbourne. The fact that Melbourne came in over 20 years ago now, and they were so almost instantly successful in the way that they were, they almost provide the perfect benchmark, really, of, of what a, a new side should be able to do. Yeah. Um, I mean, they had, a, they had a fantastic setup, basically, from the get-go. I think Chris Anderson's coach. They had... Um, Greg Brentnell, I think, was down there in, involved in recruitment. Um, I think they had uh, – it was John Rebo, was CEO. So they, they had, had a lot of very experienced rugby league people to help them set it up. Yeah, and they also had uh, – they had a couple of teams that had just been dissolved, so there was a lot of players they available. They benefited heavily yeah, no. from the, the consolidation period. Yeah. Like, you know, you go and pick up uh, Glenn Lazarus, uh, Brett Kamali, those types of guys. Um, it's always going to improve your side. But in saying that, you know, like I said – Adelaide and Perth are outside your traditional grounds, but there's there's fans there. Um, it's just the NRL has to be prepared that when they do that, it's a it's a it's a long term project. Yeah, right. They're not going to immediately turn around and be superstars um, either on the field or, or financially. The league has to be prepared to to kind of pull them along for a little bit, and they can't get bogged down in well, they didn't turn a big profit this year or. Um, they're not playing great. It's like, what can the NRL do to ensure that they are at the very least competitive? Yeah. Um, and I think the other thing is too, you've got to point to how much money the game gets out of TV revenue from those added teams. I think that's why the next team will probably be in New Zealand. Yeah. Because it will add to the game's revenue, TV revenue over there. And I think I honestly think it will help the New Zealand Warriors. Oh, 100%. When they get some competition. Um, you know, I I was talking over the off-season on Twitter about where that second New Zealand team should be, and it went back and forth between Christchurch and Wellington. 
And honestly, I, I, I don't know the perfect place. There's talk that Christchurch could be getting a, a indoor stadium that's around 25 to 30,000 seats in the next number of years. And if they do that, I would go there mm. because it's a rectangular stadium. Uh, you don't have to worry about the elements. Um, it's, you know, it'd probably be built on rugby league park, which is obviously a rugby league, very, yeah. very, a lot of history there. Um, so I, I would look at that. Um, Expanding to New Zealand, you know, it gives the Warriors a local derby, which means mm-hmm. you're going to sell tickets. Yeah. It all, then gives you a much larger pathway for the Kiwi players to look mm-hmm. at. Because, mm-hmm. you know, the All Blacks, they're, they're, you're not going to beat the All Blacks. Mm. They're the they're the, the cream of the crop. If you're any any good at rugby union, you want to play for the All Blacks. And hell, even if you're good at rugby league, you want to play for the All Blacks. And I get that. They're one of the most successful sides of the past 30 years. But there are plenty of guys out there that I can imagine know they're not going to play for the All Blacks. They're not going to represent their country in rugby union. And hell, you get two NRL sides over there, and all of a sudden, you know, because the vast majority of the, the New Zealand national side is, is made up of the, the Warriors. The other so, thing is, too, you've got all of a sudden, you've got $20 million worth of salary cap that those two sides are, are spending in New Zealand. If I'm the New Zealand Rugby Union, I'm like, holy shit, man, this is rotten. Yeah. You know? Because um, you see a lot of guys, particularly over in, in New Zealand, they flick between union and league quite often. Mm-hmm. You know, they play union on a Saturday and league on a Sunday. Mm-hmm. And you can, as, you know, representative of the Warriors or, or whatever this second franchise is, you know, rock up and go, all right, you got a bunch of under-18s here. We've got a pathway to professional football. We've got this much money to spend. You know, a lot of those guys are going to, at the very least, get interested and come over and have a look at this playing the sport for time. Yeah, um, and you know that was the worst thing about losing the under twenties competition. You had young New Zealand players who were just at that point where they were like, "What way will I go?" They had a professional under twenties Warriors team they could go into. They were on TV every week. They were playing against the best young talent that was in Australia, which is from all over the place as well. And it, it was just a hammer blow losing that competition. They really need to bring that back. Well, that's how we got Murata Nukore. We yeah. watched him playing Warriors under 20s and then bought him. Mm. Um, you know, that type of recruitment helps helps, you know, helps the, the Australian teams as well mm-hmm. because they're not going to be in New Zealand doing recruiting that much, are they? <laughs> Let's be honest. No, you they're don't have often... to do much when it, – it, it's a. this is a thing people forget about the NRL teams in terms of – international recruitment is you could literally not leave at certain areas of Australia and never have to recruit it outside of them. Like if the Panthers wanted to just say, we will not sign anyone outside the Penrith district, they'd still be a pretty damn good club. You know, they wouldn't be what they are today, but they'd be, they'd be a fine lower tier finals club still. Um, so they don't have to do it. And when they do it, you've got to be a damn good player, but you're still going to miss players too. And that, yeah. that under-20s competition, man, they I remember Phil Gould used to just rally against that. And now he's the person saying, we should never have got rid of it. It's like, oh, please. Yeah, the, the under-20s to me was like an interesting kind of experiment. Mm-hmm. Um, I felt it did put a little bit too much pressure on the players that were playing there. Mm-hmm. Because don't forget, they were being treated essentially as professional athletes. Mm-hmm. But they were then being asked to either study full-time or work as yeah. well. Um, 
and I think there was a, a little bit too much pressure. I think they they need if they're gonna if they were to bring it back, they need to work out a better balance um, in terms of player responsibilities outside the game. Because I get it, they're, they're trying to set the players up for their future, but at the same time, that's a hell of a lot of work. Yeah. For a, for a young bloke, you know, a teenager essentially, to be across because um, we don't know. You don't ask the that fully grown men to do that, but you're asking teenagers to do that. Yeah. Some of them moving from country towns or from, or from overseas to the big smoke and then asking them, look, you've got no family support around you. You've got to play professional sport because this is your one chance. Oh, and by the way, um, make sure you're at work on time and, and make sure, you know, you've got all the T's crossed and I's dotted. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I know as a teenager myself, I wouldn't have been able to manage that. No, no chance. No, I, it would. Uh, I couldn't have done that. I couldn't have done that. Uh, maybe, a, maybe having a softer schedule, so having them play not every week. Maybe the under twenty should be like a <clears throat> a sixteen round competition or something like that, where you get you know weeks off in between. I, I, also, being like also having social caps in place, you know I, where. You, you, I, and I don't even know what they it would you would need to really sit down and think about it because I agree with you one hundred percent you don't want to you don't want to um affect young men and I guess it would eventually be young women they'd bring in a women's comp but you don't want to affect them and and hurt their their social um their social skills and and taking them away from their family and put them in what could potentially be bad situations. What I would actually like is is a revamped under twenties that isn't club aligned, but it's it's like region aligned. Oh, I'd love so, that. I would so, love. So, I mean, you combine Parramatta and Penrith into one like uh, junior system, yeah. essentially, and then you've you've basically then got not quite a college system, but you can then develop a national competition mm-hmm. that's split up more kind of evenly, where each club isn't being asked to supply you know, 22, 23 young players every season. Yeah. Um, they might only have to supply 10 or 11, but they get that that lower grades experience, but it's a much more rounded national competition. Yeah. Because, um, I mean, down to 20s is almost like, well, how did, how did the New South Rugby League run for like 100 years? All right, let's do our new version of that. And it's like, well, you had your under 23s, reserve grade and, and first grade. Um, and then you kind of went and bastardized it with under twenties, but they were playing the curtain raiser, which meant your reserve grade was off playing at Wenty Park on yeah. crap, essentially. See, I didn't mind that. I, like I, as a rugby league supporter, I, and look, I've I've called New South Wales Cup. I, I've called I've called a bunch of different levels of games. It's not like I I have anything against them, but I I when I would sit down on a Saturday, Super Saturday. I would rather have watched the under twenties plays because for me that's there's something a little bit exciting about you know am I going to see the next Greg Inglis am I going to and you would you'd see you'd see some players and you're like oh that dude there that dude's going to be something special and I, I liked that personally so I didn't mind the the reserve grade or New South Wales Cup players playing at different places but at the same time I didn't devalue their game. Because they weren't playing as the curtain raiser, I thought it was just as important. Yeah, reserve grades have always been incredibly important. Mm. Um, but on, on the topic, person who would go and watch all three grades if they were. Oh, on, yeah. Yeah. Um, 
but I, the thing I liked about reserve grade was was being able to keep an eye on guys that were coming back from injury mm-hmm. or that, you know, they, they'd done pretty well in, in Jersey flag or something and they got promoted to reserve grade. Um, I think I remember, you know, it was like the eel sides of the 2000s is you saw some of those guys coming through and you got to like follow their careers from their debut in reserve grade into first grade. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure the first time I saw Fui Fui Moimoi was, was him playing reserve grade for us. Mm-hmm. And, you know, watching him wind up and you go, oh, Jesus, he's going to be lethal <laughs> first grade. And then other weeks, you know, you'd, you'd see, um, you know, Nathan Hindmarsh running out in reserve grade because he's coming back from injury or Nathan Kalos. Mm. Um, and you could see the difference there in NRL player and a reserve grade player. You know, it was it was a it was a big um, uh, learning ground for a lot of young guys. So when I was watching um, the the, the 20s, I liked it in that you could it was a very exciting game to watch. But what I didn't like was the fact that it it felt like they were kind of harming the development of the the, the players themselves. So I'll, I'll take it back to Andrew Johns, start of his career. Mm-hmm. And this is from, from Matty Johns' book uh, that he released a while ago. He said Joey, as a teenager, played against Cliff Lyons, who was at the end of his career for Manly. Yeah. Um, and he said it was reserve grade, and Cliff Lyons tore Newcastle to shreds and just yeah. embarrassed Joey on the field. And he said that impressed on, on Andrew just how good you had to be to play at the NRL level. Yeah. And in a couple of years, Johns was making his debut. Um, and I'm not saying it was because he played reserve grade that he's as great as he is, but it gave him a reality check kind of very early on in his career to go, this is what you need to do to get to that level. And I kind of felt down to 20s, they were putting a buffer between them and actually learning what rugby league was about. Yeah, there, um, there is there was definitely an element of that. I, I think the thing for the under-20s was it because – I think development pathways for junior players, man, we're getting into it. I love yeah, the I discussions. Oh, it's so good. We're, I think the development players, the pathways for players, it, it's not one size fits all. So sometimes you get somebody who, say you're playing, you've got an under-20s comp, and it's just obvious. It's like this is this 17-year-old kid could play first grade right now. He is athletically ready to do it. I think of someone, and I know we're not supposed to talk about him anymore, but a Jared Hayne as a youngster was just ready. You know, Jason Talmalolo, incredibly as a forward, was just ready. There are some young players that you look at and it's like, let them destroy their peers for one year and they can go straight into first grade and they're ready. Then there's some players that, and Cody Walker's a great example. They need years. They so, need. So last year was a great example. Um, Sam Walker, teenager, yeah. makes his NRL debut, and in the same season, Makahezi Makatoa makes his debut. He's twenty eight. Mm-hmm. So I get what you're saying. You know, players they develop at different rates, and they're ready when they're ready. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Phil Gould talks about this a lot, and I agree with him on it a lot. Is that you can't have just try and have one system that every player goes through no, and then cast no. them aside when they're not in the NRL at the age of 21. Because, you know, guys like Macca, guys like Cody Walker, even Nathan Ross when he was at uh, Newcastle, mm-hmm. um, those types of guys, they might not mature to their mid-20s, late-20s. But quite often they bring something different to a team. They bring that level of experience in reserve grade and they bring that bit more level-headedness because, um, you know, they've had to be working part-time for the last six, seven, eight years. 
Fogarty, Jamal Fogarty is a really good example. Mm. At yeah, the, he was at Parramatta for a year too. Yeah, and like goes to the Titans. He's just comes in and all of a sudden it's like, oh, this dude is playing like a veteran because he was a veteran. Yeah, he's played over 100 games of Queensland Cup and New South Wales Cup. Yeah. He knows what he's doing out there. I love players like that. That's the thing I love about Cody Walker is that this guy, I can't think of another word to describe him outside of he's a magician. I know I said it time and time again, but he does things on the football field that it's a little bit Cliff Lyons-y in that you're like, how the hell did he do that? He's not the fastest. He's not the strongest. He's not the biggest. He just does what he does. It's beautiful to watch. And he's he learned that in the lower grades. He learned that, you know, there would be plenty of teams that would say, ah, oh, he's 23. Yeah, he's done. He's done. He's done. And then he gets into first grade and it's like, look at him. This mm, is an yeah. origin player. I love those stories. Yeah, yeah I think. So just to, to wrap it up, because we're talking about expansion. Yeah. <laughs> Once upon a time, uh, yes. And yes. we are talking about Souths. So on the expansion yes. front, um, uh, we'll just kick them out of the competition again. Yeah, um, let's get rid of Sydney. That's that's fine. They've been back for 20 years. They've had their run. Um, had a good run. Know, they could have stayed in if they won the grand final last year, but they didn't. So, yeah. yeah. But, um, it happens. <laughs> I, look, their next expansion, I mean, do you think it'll be New Zealand? I think... Like like you said, commercially, it probably makes the most sense. Yeah. Um, you know, TV rights, big tick. Um, you're already dealing with a uh, a time difference that you've everyone's well adjusted to. Yeah. Um, and then you've also got a large pool of players that you can then possibly attract, whilst also giving the Warriors uh, essentially a hand because they're going to have um two two derbies a year. You, I think you'd have to nail that into the schedule. Is that you would have to both those teams would have to play each other twice a year. Yes. But you couldn't have a year where there's one off. You just you need to have them playing twice a year. But yeah, that, that makes the most sense to me. An expansion in New Zealand, wherever I look, I have no idea about um where the, the heartlands are, rugby league and rugby union in New Zealand. All I know is that there's a hell of a lot of players over there that um that should be playing rugby league and should be playing in the NRL. I mean yeah. I'm an Eels fan, and I'm selfish. I like Dylan Brown playing for us. I like Isaiah Papali'i playing for us. I like Murata Nikore playing for us. But if there were two New Zealand teams, they probably wouldn't be playing for us. Same with Warrimu Greg. Um, you know, those guys were all not picked up by the Warriors mm-hmm. or released by the Warriors, and they came to Australia for a, a shot, essentially. And Warrimu went to, to the Cowboys first and then came to us. But, you know... If there were two teams there, that might not have got. It might not have got that far. It yeah. might have been well, the Warriors doesn't want you, but the other club wants you. So you can mm-hmm. stay in New Zealand, stay with your family, and you can um, play in the NRL. And the, the other thing is too, like you look at someone like a Dylan Brown, and, and I'm the same as you. I hope he plays his entire career at the Eels. I, I love watching him play, but if his choice is to play in Australia or play for the Warriors, I can see him saying, "Man, I, I don't think that's the right situation for me." Having that extra option where it's a different club, different people involved and stuff like that. And I'm not bagging the Warriors. It's just another option. You know, it'd be like if you you wanted to live in North Queensland, but you weren't a big fan of how the Cowboys were doing stuff at the time. You know, it's, it's just having those extra options will be great for those Kiwi players. The thing I like about the next expansion step for rugby league in Australia, or the NRL in particular, I should say, the next one's going to be a true expansion of the competition. Mm-hmm. We've yep. 
we've ticked all the boxes now. We're good for the base. Now it's time to go elsewhere. And if no matter if it's New Zealand, if it's uh if it's Adelaide, if it's Perth, they need to get rid of the the pirate's name. The pirate's name's ridiculous. Gotta yeah. call them quokkas. Um if it's PNG Bring back the Rams. I've, I've yeah, actually the, the Rams, I've good. The Rams a, are a good name, hey. I've just ordered a Rams shirt, actually. So. Oh really? That's very yeah. Yeah, Steve Mascord's been selling them, so I grabbed one. I thought that's gonna be fantastic. But there's something about that Adelaide Rams name. It's it shouldn't work, but damn it, it it it's persisted. Yeah, know? it has. I mean, buddy, um, Dennis Fitzgerald and Jack Gibson wanted to change Parramatta to the Rams in the yeah. in the 80s because um, Gibson, obviously, big fan of the uh, the NFL and, yeah. and looked at the St. Louis Rams, they were blue and gold, mm-hmm. and um. And they, they didn't kind of feel that the eel really fit the look they were going for. But the, thankfully, they got talked out of that because I like having a, an Indigenous name oh, as it's part beautiful. of our, our club. It's, you know, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it just encapsulates the colors beautifully. But, yeah, the Rams just seem to fit in a sporting context, which is so weird when it's just like it's a sheep with horns. Yeah. <laughs> what are you doing here? But, yeah, it, it just fits particularly for Adelaide. Yeah, there's something – it's very, very strange because I remember when they, they announced the team names – and obviously, a lot of the Super League teams are very Americanized names. And but there's something about that Adelaide Rams name; it just feels right. It, and I, I'm agree with you. They would have to be the Adelaide Rams. I would hate to see the only way it could not be the Rams is if it was the Adelaide Sharks. And then it's like, well, that's <laughs> you know, that's pretty, and you know, it fits in well and stuff like that. But Perth cannot be the; they've got to be the Quokkas. Uh, just an adorable. Angry little quack, like trying to be angry, but it's just so cute. Oh, I'd love that. Um, so, so yeah, so we've talked about expansion. Was there anything else that kind of cropped up that you're like, oh, that was interesting? No, I think that was that was kind of the main the main points a lot of people were making. As I said, it was a bit hard to keep on top of everything that came because it exploded. Yeah. Now it would be remiss of us not to talk about the passing of two greats of the game this week. Uh, we lost Johnny Raper, who just one of the all-time greatest players, one of the greatest characters in the game's history, one of the great winners. He really changed the way that the lock position was looked at in rugby league. Very skillful player, um, st- enough skill to play 5-8 without question. Um, really was one of the players that focused very much on his fitness. And at that time, it kind of wasn't something that, players were looking at too much. I mean, they wanted to stay fit and healthy, but he really took it to a different level. And it was very sad to hear of his passing. And then just today we found out that Olsen Philippina, um, he passed away today as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've lost both of them too young, I think, and uh, two real pioneers of the game in different ways. Yeah, Raper, there's not much more that can be said about him. Mm-hmm. Um an immortal, one of the first immortals, mm-hmm. you know, eight consecutive premierships with St. George. I mean, captain coached the the club as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you can tell he's just a, a fan of the sport considering he came back to, to coaching later in life in the seventies and finished his career at Newtown. Um, yeah. Like you said, he changed the way the lock position was played. Um, in many ways, the lock positions kind of changed back to the way that Raper played. You know, that very skillful big body in the middle of the field um, who's got a big engine. But yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, he was part of that St. George side that 
really they were going to be the fittest team in the competition. He was the fittest of the lot. Um, you don't have the type of career that he did in the era that he did and play for as long as he did. If you didn't look after yourself. Um, and of course, Olsen Filipano, trailblazing Polynesian um, and Maldi um, player for, for Balmain Norths and, and East. So could, I, I don't know. He played for East until I was looking him up today, um, but I think he had a season there. Yeah, there was there was a point in uh, the late 80s, early 90s where basically everyone had to play for East at the end of their career. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, you know, when you look at the, the lineage now of, of Olsen uh, and you look at the – we've got a huge number of Polynesian and Pacifica and Maldi players. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of them probably aren't here if, it, if, if, if he didn't kind of become the first player to do it and, you know – Clubs can't get enough of, of players from that heritage these days. Um, but for him to do it in the 80s and, you know, stare down racism like he did uh, in a very tough era mm-hmm. uh, that he's, you know, he spoke about a couple of years ago when his book came out. Um, but also just that um, I think I, I might have written it in my newsletter this week or something. It's something about staring down the mortality of, of a lot of the guys that, I, you know, I didn't grow up watching these players, but I grew up hearing stories about them and yeah. um, seeing highlights. I mean, we've also got uh, Steve Mortimer's not doing too well mm-hmm. uh, in, in hospital. Um, Royce Siemens is battling yeah. with uh, some issues as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, his, his diagnosis that he's announced this week. Um, mm-hmm. You know, being particularly, even though I'm an Eels fan, uh, hearing about Steve Mortimer was, was tough because I remember um, you know, talking to, to my grandfather and people of his of his age um, a few years ago about, you know, Mortimer and Sterling yeah. uh, and to, to look at what's happened with Steve and you go, those types of players, they, they are literally getting old in front of us. Yeah. Um, and it's, 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 it's funny, even though I'm not even 30 yet. And I can remember as a kid looking at, you know, highlights of these players and seeing him interview and like, oh, they don't look that old. And that's where you, you, your brain remembers them from. And yeah. Then you see, like I, I saw them interview Steve Edge, like during the week about Johnny Raper, and my image of him is nothing like what he looks like now. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I spoke to him a couple of years ago, but I only spoke to him on the phone. Yeah. But my memory from him is like the early two thousands. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I think it might have been two thousand six when there was like a twenty year reunion um, of the eighty six grandpa. He wasn't part of that team, but um, they just had like a legends thing. Um, just a lot of those players where my brain goes, oh, they still look like they're in their fifties. And then you actually look at them and go, oh, like they're in their seventies. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and also we've lost, I think, well, Raper was the last of the in- inaugural immortals. Um, mm-hmm. And we've, we, we lost, uh, we lost Norm Proven at the end of last year as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. It is a bit, it is a bit sobering to, to see those guys who were literally labeled immortals and then they pass away. Yeah. And the, the thing is too, like, yeah, the thing with Raper that I've been thinking about is just all the experiences and stories and things that are now, if they're not recorded, they're gone. And, you know, that, that I guess that's the thing about players and people like him is that, you know, as long as we remember them and we remember the things they did and, and their character and, you know, I, I never saw Raper talking without a smile, without a bit of a cheeky, you know. He, he always seemed like he was about to say something cheeky. And 
it was always he was one of those people that whenever you heard him speak, it was like you were learning something. It didn't matter what he was talking about. And, you know, as long as you remember those parts, like that's that's immortality. That's, you know, people in 200 years in rugby league history will talk about the Provens and the Rapers and the Gaznies and players like that. And and that's their immortality. That that's why they got those tags and um but it, it is so sad to lose those people that you look up to as you know, they're like gods of the game. You know, you think of the rugby league gods and it's it's their faces, you know, and it it's very sad to lose lose people of that that stature within the sport. It's uh you know, I feel for his family and those that are very close to both of them. And uh, because I know as fans, we feel their loss um, very heavily as well. And, and I, I can't imagine what it's like for their family and close friends. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's it's when you look at, um, you know, those guys from the 60s and 70s and, and even the 50s as well. You know, when I'm growing up, they're still quite involved in the game. And it's almost like sometimes... Um, they drop off from the like the news cycle and the like as mm-hmm. they get older, mm. and then we kind of only hear about them when they're sick or, or when they've passed away. And like you said, you know those those greats of the game are going to be talked spoken about in a hundred years from now um, because they they are immortals and they will kind of always be remembered by the game. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I also think a, a big part of that is the, the fantastic work the NRL's done with um, their heritage museum. Mm-hmm. As well, like you can go in there to, I think it's Moore Park, and you can look at the teams that that Raper played in, and then see his name there on the honour board as well. Um, and then, and also, I think um, I'm not 100 percent sure on this, but he'd also be his name would also be up there at the SCG. I'm not sure if they've got an honours board up there for the the premiers um, when the grand finals used to be held there. I'm pretty sure they do. Yeah. I have a feeling they do because I think that. I've seen something with uh, Clive Churchill's name on it, and I was like, man, just to see that board would be, oh, you know. Yeah, I mean, that's part of also that that bit of history. His, his name's etched in stone there. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's engraved up up on, and you know, we could move, you know, we could never play another game at the Sydney Cricket Ground, but it's always going to be part of his legacy there. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. he represented Australia there, and he represented the Dragons there. For you know, and he also. Um, Representing New South Wales there as well, um, even if it was before the Origin period. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's uh, it is it is very, you know, it is very sad to see some of these these legends go, um, and some some of them quite quickly. I mean, last year we lost a lot when you yeah. some of the names that passed, and Bob Fulton and Tommy Radonigas, and I think it was Arthur was it Arthur Summers last year as well. And yeah, Pope. we did. Yeah, yeah, we did. It's uh, uh it's a, it's rough, but um, man, it's part of life. It's not exactly. it's not a fun part of life, but it's part of life. Every every journey has an end, and man, what a journey that those two legends had. Um, now where can we find you? And tell us because you're doing so much this year. I, I'm really excited about the, all the projects you've got going. Um, so tell us all about them. Yeah, so you can get my usual written stuff at rugbyleaguemonthly.com. Um, but the two things I've launched this year is a, a daily news podcast that goes every Monday to Friday. So it's up about 5 a.m. I don't 
write it at 5am and record it. My wife would kill me. <laughs> so I'm writing it the, the night before. But it's basically your, your overnight fix of rugby league news condensed to within five minutes. Um, so if you need to catch up on, you know, scores uh, or, you know, general rugby league news, you can grab it there. Um, that's called the Rugby League Daily. And it's not just Australian football. It, it's it's around the world. So, you you know, you're getting updates from the Super League and from the championship and what's happening in France and, and around in the different countries that play rugby league because there's not a lot of news that actually cover anything outside the NRL or England. Yeah. Uh, but there's so much actually going on in the rugby league world. Uh, another thing that uh, is running is on YouTube. It's called The Extended Bench, uh, and that runs twice a week, Monday and Wednesday at the moment, which is – at the moment, it's mostly just uh, uh, season previews for each club. So each week I'm doing two clubs. Uh, I'm up to Cronulla and the Raiders next week. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm also throwing in some some rugby league history. So there's one up at the moment on the Super League War. Trying to simplify that into 10 minutes is – like, Good luck. <laughs> I've done it. it. It was a pain in the butt, but I did it. Um, and I, I got a well done from Steve Mascord and the guys oh, at Rugby League Digest. So obviously I must have done something right. Um, didn't get anything horribly wrong. Um, and I also, I've also done one on uh, French Rugby League and, and it's, uh, it's collapsed during the, the Second World War. Mm-hmm. Um, so during the season, it's going to be more looking at uh, analysis. Once the season starts, analysis of what's happened on the weekend, playing around some some uh, animation because I can't use uh, footage from, from nine or Fox unless I want to get copyright strikes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're looking at some an- animation there as well as I've just got some really like rugby league nerdy stuff <laughs> to look at. So I know we spoke earlier about Craig Bellamy. Um, yeah. So I've got a video coming out about him that he literally is one of the greatest coaches of, of all time and, and the greatest coach of the modern era. When you look at winning percentages, so I got a whole pile of graphs and stuff to come out of there. So um, it's busy. Yep. So as I said, rugbyleaguemonthly.com is all the written um, feature length articles, Rugby League Daily Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts, um, Apple, Spotify, Google, wherever you want, um, and the Extended Bench, and that's on YouTube. So you can just search Extended Bench. Excellent. And of course, One Ideal, who yes, we can never forget. Yes, One Ideal, which uh, is going to be cranking up as we get closer to the season, particularly with uh, the NRLW, because we, we have our inaugural side. Yeah, I've seen some really good content out of the club from the NRLW team. Um, really awesome stuff. I, maybe I wonder how I would be received if I opened up an account on One Ideal. I feel like it would be halfy halfy. <laughs> <laughs> maybe I shouldn't do that. Um, look, thanks for ha- for coming on. Um, we'll have you on during the year as a regular, so just be prepared. <laughs> no worries. <laughs> And as always, you know, we start talking about one thing, we talk about 50 other things. And, uh, yeah, it's it's been a pleasure to talk to you once again. No worries, mate. Thanks for having me on. And for everyone that's listening, make sure you subscribe to my Rugby League Monthly. Uh, Check out everything that Elliot does. Check out Elliot Richardson on Twitter. And if you Google him, I'm sure if you Google Elliot Richardson Rugby League, all sorts of cool stuff will come up. So uh, Don't leave the Rugby League off because Elliot Richardson is also the name of the Attorney General during Watergate. (laughs) So if you just search Elliot Richardson, you're going to get all this stuff about uh, Richard Nixon and Watergate. I've done that before. (laughs) That's hilarious. That's hilarious. Yeah, so make sure you chuck in the rugby league part, please. And uh, thanks for listening, and uh, we will talk to you very soon.